you know, let food be thy medicine and let thy medicine be thy food. What can we do beyond that now? Girl, you've got questions. Questions about your body and how to feel good in it, about your hormones and how to keep them in check. Questions about your sex life and your whole health. Can you imagine having a best girlfriend who was also a triple board certified OBGYN? A girlfriend doctor you could call and ask or tell her anything. Someone who could show you how to live any stage of life before, during, or after menopause in a big, bold, and beautiful way. Well, friends, I'm your girlfriend doctor. I believe you were meant to flourish and shine, to embrace life and awaken to all its possibilities. Let's get there together. Welcome to our show. Primum non nocere which means first do no harm. As a physician, we're very familiar with this. Universally, this saying, first do no harm, is part of the Hippocratic Oath we take as being a doctor. And it really means first do no harm. It may have been taken to be, well, when the risks outweigh the benefits or the benefits outweigh the known risks, we can recommend this procedure or this um, prescription or this intervention. And I think it's really important to mention now. I wanna talk about a couple key interventions that have been done in the past that were approved and carried on for years until we really understood the consequences of that and including, which really pertains to women's health but also men's health is DES exposure in utero. Now that was done from 1941 to 1971, and there were millions, millions, five to 10 million people exposed. And we see a second generation, third generation effect. And so I'm gonna talk about that and how that relates to women's health today, as well as thalidomide. And probably one of the, before I even went to medical school, I read historic bibliographies, including that of Ignaz Philippe Semmelweis. And I'll share how his, um, profound recommendation was met with ridicule and how that affects us today. Well, hello everyone. I'm Dr. Annika Beck. I'm the Girlfriend Doctor and it is my mission and my passion to help women live better lives before, during, and after menopause. So welcome to the Girlfriend Doctor podcast. It's an intimate place for intimate conversation and I am here for you. You can ask or tell me anything. No shame, no guilt, no apologies. Let me say that again, no shame. I recently um, published something in my Facebook feed that said that um, the pharmaceutical companies should be held accountable for vaccine injuries. And I had been met with a shame on you, not once, but twice. And here we do no shaming, no guilt, no apologies. We really are pulling back the curtain, trusting the you know, intuition and science and medical literature as well. So here we are to talk about all things that relate to women's health, right? Sexual health, libido, PMS, menopause, how interventions can affect us positively and negatively and what we need to do about it. So here we talk about it. And my goal is that you have overall wellness shining from the inside out, 
mind, body, and spirit. So let's get started. I said I want to talk about DES because right now these DES babies are in menopause and postmenopause. So 1941 through 1971. I was born in 1966. My mom delivered me and my brothers in a naval hospital. She'd had two miscarriages beforehand. And this is, you know, do I know if she took DES? No, I do not know. But I know there are endocrine disruptions associated with it. So let, let's talk about DES, diethyl stilbestrol. It was initiated in 1941, approved by the FDA in 1941 and um, in America. And in 1947, FDA approved for pregnancy to help the goal was that it would reduce the risk of miscarriage. Well, that didn't show to be the case. And by 19, late 1960s, early 1970s, 1971, the FDA finally pulled um, it from the use in pregnant women. And what it was, again, clinically used and marketed for was to prevent recurrent miscarriages, but did not show any increase in full-term pregnancy and delivery. But what we found in the outcomes of the girls, the infant girls and boys, the sons and daughters of DES, of moms who use DES um, prescribed by the physician was an increase in a clear cell adenocarcinoma of the vagina in girls as young as eight. And the oldest age, we don't know yet, but typically we saw it in teenage years through the 20s. So the child born and exposed in 1971 would be 50 years old now, 50 years old entering menopause. And we've also seen earlier menopause and increased risk of breast cancer, reproductive abnormalities into the genital tract of DS babies, as well as increased risk of infertility. And this is, um, this was really uh, significant information and significant findings that we're still following this, um, the infants of, of the, the now adults of um, those who were exposed to DES in utero. What's really fascinating is the continued study and, and lengthy studies in looking at the second generation, the third generation. So, so if mom took DES, we are familiar with the risks associated with DES exposure in utero now. In girls, again, including vaginal clear cell adenocarcinoma, uterine abnormalities, infertility issues, increase in early menopause, increase in um, breast cancer, and um, depression mood disorders. So understanding whether or not we were exposed in utero is very helpful. Now those children of those babies who were, you know, those women who were exposed have also shown an increase in infertility and an increase in uterine malformations. So that's a third generation effect of maternal intrauterine um, exposure in utero. I'll share with you a couple of pictures I found um, in doing my research. This is a study looking at the genetics of DES exposure in the grandchildren of DES with the conclusions. This was published in 2018 in DES hashtag France.org. This was an advertisement 
in newspapers and for physicians and the general public. And this shows that the question is really, and the answer, yes, DES-Plex, that was the name of diethylstobestrone prescription, to prevent abortion, miscarriage, and premature labor. And this is the statement that was advertised, recommended for routine prophylaxis, in other words, prevention, in all pregnancies, all was capitalized in this advertisement with um, an expectation of 96% live delivery. And that's what they were advertising. So this advertising was showing women that, oh my goodness, here, you can take this drug and guaranteed a, a basically guaranteed a live pregnancy. Well, in fact, that wasn't the case. And the generational exposure of DES is still affecting women and men today. So what about exposure to the sons in women who took DES in pregnancy. Well, the research showed, I'm looking at the American Cancer Society website, the research looked at um, problems that sons of DES exposed moms could have had. Epididymal cyst, these are non-cancerous growths on the testes, have, um, these sons have a higher percentage. The other thing is hypospadias or smaller testes. It's another, um, condition that sons who have been exposed to DES are known for. The other thing is undescended testes or hypospadia. So if you or your partner has had these things and you're able to ask or obtain medical records, then you should do so to find out, did your mother, or in this case too, maybe grandmother, have DES in pregnancy? Again, 19 40s through 1971. So if you were born like me during that time period, it's uh, good information to have. And this is something that I think is, it's really helpful because you want to have, in any case, diagnose cancer earlier rather than later. And that's critical. In this American Cancer Society report, looking at the third generation, they also have suggested that in this third generation in men that there is this risk of hypospadias and it may be higher in boys whose mothers were exposed to DES. And I think this is a critical thing that research is ongoing. Additionally, in um, gender identification studies published in the Archives of Sexual Behavior in 2020, looked at gender identity and sexual orientation identity in, in women and men prenatally exposed to diethylstobestrol. This is a report that's been anal analyzing this cohort, relatively small considering the five to 10 million people who were exposed to DES. This looked at 3,306 women and 1,848 men who were being followed in the study did not show a change, a difference in gender orientation or gender identity in women who were exposed prenatally. However, in men, they were somewhat more likely to report being gay or bisexual. But again, estimates were imprecise, still a relatively small study. So we know from the latest follow-up from the National Cancer Institute, which looked at data from this latest analysis of a um, follow-up study began in May of 2016, which is now completed as of 2020, 
but the latest study results showed a positive association between prenatal DES exposure with cancer and other medical conditions, including cardiovascular disease and myocardial infarction, but not stroke in, in those exposed depression, uh, earlier menopause and um, health outcomes in the granddaughters, also looking at increase in infertility, especially after age 30. And the question of sexual orientation and gender identity in the male offsprings. Um, continuing studies, including in breast cancer, ovarian cancer, are ongoing, but there appears to be an increased risk in those as well. So I think it's important to, to look at these studies and to consider what it's showing us and what we can do about it and look at the future of studying risks of any intervention in pregnancy that we are accountable and looking at what the next generation consequences. So as we are exposed to so much and this synthetic estrogen being an example, diethylstilbestrol for instance, and really being concerned about what's given to the food we eat. We are what we eat ate right? And what they were injected with and what they were treated with and medicated with, we're ingesting those things. So hormone disruptors, especially along our estrogen, you know, reproductive hormone pathways have been shown based on history to have genetic effects. And we want to be careful and pristine as an OBGYN. I want to follow Hippocratic Oath, primum non nocere, and also to adequately consent my patients on the risks and benefits of any intervention I do for them in pregnancy and, and otherwise, right? I will consent you thoroughly on the known risks, the risks that I know and are unknown in a certain procedure and with a certain pharmacologic. And that is widespread universal standard among physicians. We need to fully have transparency for the risk and benefits of any intervention, especially in pregnancy. And I bring up this DES to say, we wanna really maintain pregnancy care, but also if you've had exposure or your mother, grandmother had exposure, I mean, it's there's a heightened level of screening and awareness that you need to have and let your physician be aware of. So DES exposure is, it's an important, Thing to understand. And one way to find out is through pharmacological records or, you know, maternal health records. And uh, although it's hard to get at this late stage in the game. So I think it's, it's worth mentioning. Another thing I want to mention is thalidomide. And I think we've, you may have seen images of thalidomide babies and um, with the absence of limbs and shortened stature. And these were consequences of a medication called thalidomide that was FDA approved also in the United States. While it was first thought to help women with morning sickness and be approved in pregnancy, um, in 1961, it was removed from the market in Europe that year because of an estimate, incredible number of teratogenic birth defects. And as well, the study looked at 10,000 
um, total number of embryos that were affected by use during pregnancy was estimated at 10,000, of which 40% died around the time of birth. And those who survived had limb, eye, urinary tract, and heart problems. So this, I've taken care of children, young women who were exposed to thalidomide in utero and had incredible birth defects. I've, I've taken care of women who had prenatal exposure to DES. And it's often as if they're waiting for the next shoe to drop. And we want to remove these harms as much as possible and educate individuals about the risks of especially hormone modulating drugs in pregnancy and around which, which was really fascinating about thalidomide, which I hadn't realized is that, you know, it, it um, is, can be transmitted in semen. So it can be transmitted in semen from a man to a woman, and that increases their risks for, certainly if they were to get pregnant, for that exposure to thalidomide and uh, birth defects, as well as an increased risk of blood clots and um, autoimmune issues. This episode of the show is sponsored by the Keto Green Shake Mix. The Keto Green Shake Mix is an all-in-one meal replacement shake that will help you with weight loss, give you more energy, help reduce hot flashes, and reduce your struggles with other hormone-related issues. It tastes great and will help you feel full longer. It is plant-based protein with zero grams of sugar and all the vitamins and minerals you need. Find Keto Green Shake Mix at DrAnna.com and use the code SHOW10 to get 10% off your first order. So many things have been released and pulled off the market. As an OBGYN, I know many drug reps had come to my office and presented me with some really tempting options, whether it be for sexual health, libido, birth control, anti-inflammatory drugs such as Vioxx. Remember that one? That was like, they wanted that in the water. I mean, like, oh my God, let's put Vioxx in the water. I mean, this is so great. This is such an anti-inflammatory drug. Well, guess what a consequence was? It was withdrawn because it showed an increase in heart attack and stroke. So not exactly the consequence we want. And at the beginning of my podcast, I said I would talk about Ignaz Philippe Semmelweis. He was a surgeon and in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology in um, Austria. And what he recognized was that the children and the moms who gave birth in the midwifery center did much better much, much, much better than the moms who gave birth in the medical center with the medical residents and, and doctors coming from the autopsy room straight to the delivery room and delivering a baby, no gloves used. Well, when he presented his findings and that simply by hand washing, he was able to reduce puerperal fever, that is childbirth fever, childbed fever. He was able to reduce that to below 1%. So very excited to uh, present that to the Austrian 
medical uh, society, he was ridiculed. He was essentially stripped of his medical license. And in 1865, it said that he suffered a nervous breakdown and was committed to an asylum. He died um, 14 days later from a gangrenous wound on his hand. All he'd been saying is, wash your hands. Well, after he died, he, the work from Louis Pasteur confirming the germ theory, use of uh, pasteurization, and Joseph Lister, hence the name Listerine, um, their research showed that hygienic methods would increase in tremendous success, as well as the creation of, of penicillin, certainly the germ theory. All Ignace Philippe Semmelweis was saying was wash your hands. And I think in my own medical practice, as I had read this before I even went into medical school and certainly studying OBGYN, was that practice medicine that makes sense. Practice medicine that makes sense. And primum non nocere, first do no harm use the best information that we have at the time we're giving it and empower the individual in, in um, physical health, mental health, spiritual health. And as, you know, our father of medicine, Hippocrates said, you know, let food be thy medicine and let thy medicine be thy food. What can we do beyond that now? We can support our immune system with traditional therapies that have been around for generations. We can support our mind with great, you know, gratitude practices and improve our lifestyle by increasing our oxytocin, things that increase oxytocin on a daily basis, playing with our pets, expressing and receiving love, doing things that make you laugh and enjoy yourself. So in this time where there's so much uncertainty and so much fear, I think the one thing I want you to take away with is empower your health, regardless of what you may have been exposed to in utero. Protect your, your body, this temple of your spirit with good health measures, good activity, good mental state, and, and do what's right for you. Do what's right for you intuitively and with the best science. Don't be afraid to ask for the risks and benefits and, uh, and clearly understand that before you take on a foreign, a foreign substance, a surgical procedure. Um, we, I want you to know that. And I think that's something that I recognize too in being in my medical practice and having done, you know, a, an average of two to three surgeries a week initially, as I worked with patients to empower their body, I needed to, re, you know, to recommend two or three major surgeries per year. A body has tremendous ability to be empowered. And as I've worked with so many patients with histories of breast cancer and other gynecologic cancers, understanding the underlying causes is helpful and getting to the foundation of cellular health, mitochondrial health, um, epigenetic health, that these things make a difference in our lives. And so I encourage you to feel empowered over your body, to ask questions, to trust your intuition and do what's right for you in, um, in this time. And most importantly, empower oxytocin. Empower oxytocin to be that leading hormone in your body, to act in with love and not fear. Fear is the hormone cortisol. Love is the hormone oxytocin. Every decision we make will lean towards fear or lean towards 
love. So with love, this is Dr. Anna Kabeca, your girlfriend doctor. Remember, there's no such thing as TMI. You can ask or tell me anything. I am here for you and I look forward to your feedback and looking forward to seeing you next time. I'm so happy to be your girlfriend doctor. Bye till next time.